the important distinction that, that people on my side of the fence constantly make till we're blue in the face is that there is a difference between being pro-business and pro-market. And so no individual provider of credit should be protected. No type of credit product should be protected as if it was the bald eagle. But you need to protect credit markets. You need to protect ways for people to access credit so that the best, most efficient products and the players that treat the consumers well so that consumers use them can come in, grow, thrive, and the ones that don't can be pushed out via competition. Hey, listeners, this is your MPD host, Chad Reese. Before we jump into today's show, I want to introduce you to a new segment we're trying out called What's on Tap. Every other Tuesday at the start of each episode, I'll be joined by Kate Delanoy, who heads our media relations team here at Mercatus, to talk about two of my favorite things, the latest coming out of Mercatus and beer. Uh, Kate, I'm going to get us started with the real easy part. So today we're going to be sipping on Great Divide's Hop Disciples. This is their 2018 variety made with Equinot hops. So continue to kind of sip that while you're thinking about my next question, which is what's on tap at Mercatus this week? We have a lot going on this week. Uh, Scott and David, who are our monetary policy scholars, Scott Sumner, David Beckworth, are both in town, which is exciting. And David is going to be recording several episodes of Macro Musings. Your listeners might be familiar with that podcast. It's the Mercatus Monetary Policy Podcast. Comes out Monday mornings each week. We had David on the show. He was great. Excellent. Yeah. So David is going to be recording new episodes. So look for those over the next few weeks, including one with Kevin Erdman, who has a book coming out with Mercatus later this fall that's looking at the financial crisis and what some of the causes might, you know, the overlooked causes might be behind that. And um, then you actually are going to be having a special release of a podcast on Wednesday. I do. It's a big week for us here at the uh, Mercatus Policy Download. Yeah. So secret episode, do you have anything that you can share ahead of time or is it all under wraps? It is mostly under wraps until Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. I will tell our listeners uh, so they can hear a little bit here and get excited about Wednesday morning that we're going to have Tyler Cowan on the show. So you're not going to want to miss Wednesday morning's release. All right. So I will be up, ready, have my phone, and I will be checking out the latest episode this week, Tuesday and Wednesday. Absolutely. All right. Also on Wednesday, Oliver Schraus here at the Mercatus Center will be testifying before a subcommittee of the House Oversight Committee, and he's going to be talking about uh, data transparency in the government. So when you say data transparency at the government, is that government agencies' data? Is that the data of companies that are regulated by the government? It's really about The government produces so much data that there's really no way for any one person to even fully understand what, you know, what each of these agencies is producing or how many regulations there are. And so Oliver and his team, along with Patrick McLaughlin, have done a lot of really great work. And I encourage people to check it out, quantgov.org. But they have done work to try and just even quantify how many regulations are out there. Uh, There's a lot of talk in D.C., obviously, about regulatory reform. Do we need it? What does that mean? What does it look like? And so this is, you know, the first step really in understanding what reform looks like is to figure out what's actually on the books and what kind of data and information is out there. Exciting stuff. Yes. And then Thursday morning, their Senate banking is going to be hosting a hearing uh, for the latest XM or Export Import Bank president. So we'll be paying attention to that because it's a 
big issue for some folks here. And I was going to say, I know we've done a lot of work on the Export-Import Bank in the past. Do we have anything maybe more recently than kind of the last round of policy debates we can point listeners to? Yeah. So Veronique Deruji has not let this issue go. Uh, she continues to really focus in on it. And she had an op-ed over the weekend that ran in Investor's Business Daily. And then um, I believe she's going to have some more content up at the bridge this week. So uh, I think I'm going to promise people they should go check that out and they can see it there. <laughs> well, now that you've promised it, I guess I have to deliver it. So keep an eye on the bridge. So it sounds like we've got exciting stuff coming out from the Mercatus Policy Downloads. Scott and David are in town. Oliver's going to be testifying this week and Export-Import Bank stuff is happening. Is that it? I mean, besides for thoughts on the beer, I think so. Great. My two cents, it's not as crisp, not as dry as I was hoping. I'm not getting as many fruity notes, but it's kind of a little maltier, a little heavier, a little sweeter. Uh, I still don't mind it. I'm going to go 3.5 stars uh, out of five. What are your thoughts? I initially, I thought it was, I still thought I was getting that light feeling, but the more I've sipped on it, the more I have to agree. I think it's a little bit heavier. Um, I'm not a big IPA person, but I like trying new things. So I think I'm going to give this one a 2.5 out of oh, five stars. Oh, okay. Harsh grader. <laughs> All right. That's 2018 Hop Disciples from Great Divide. Somewhat mixed opinions here. So thanks for sharing a beer and some important updates, Kate. I think now it's time for us to jump into some policy. So next, we'll be talking about consumer financial regulation with Brian Knight and Justin Chardon. Thanks, Chad. Cheers. Cheers. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. How to regulate consumer financial products and services has remained one of the most contentious issues in Washington since the financial crisis. Congress created a new agency aimed at dealing with the issue in the wake of the crisis, but nearly seven years after that agency first opened its doors, the issue remains as relevant as ever. In fact, experts are even divided on what to call the agency. For some, it's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB. For others, including Acting Director Mick Mulvaney, it's the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, or the BCFP. Today, I'm going to try to keep the peace and just call it the Bureau and ask our guests to talk a little bit about why the recent nomination of Kathleen Craniger to direct the agency matters and the future of the agency. Our first guest is Justin Chardon, a fellow with the Bipartisan Policy Center and the former director of their Financial Regulatory Reform Initiative. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks, and I'm, I want to confirm that I'm going to be paid in chocolate. <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss specific compensation after the fact. We can definitely edit out the fact that we bribe guests with chocolate. Okay. I hope. Uh, I'm also happy to welcome back to the show Brian Knight, Director of the Financial Regulatory Program here at the Mercatus Center. Glad you're not sick of me yet, Brian. Well, you know, they pay me to be here, so that works. In chocolate, in chocolate as well? <laughs> in money that can be exchanged for chocolate. <laughs> there we go. I'll just jump out with the obvious question first. We're here talking because Kathleen Craniger has been nominated to direct the Bureau and would sort of be in charge of consumer financial regulatory matters for the entire country, state issues notwithstanding. So what are your all's thoughts on the nomination process, on how the Bureau got where it is, and, and what we might expect going forward? Maybe I could just start with the, the process, as you, as you alluded to. I mean, I, I have no – I'm not going to comment on her specifically, and I don't know. I'm looking forward to these hearings as well to hear what, how qualified she is and what she plans would plan to do with the agency. But it's so, it's so strange to me that we've gotten here where right after the agency started – the uh, the Republicans in the Senate basically said, we're not going to confirm anybody to this position unless you change the structure, you take away independent funding. And there was one other thing that I'm not remembering. But until you agree to these demands, nobody gets confirmed. Then you get Cordray in there, I believe, on a recess appointment. And now we're at a point where we have an acting director who was not confirmed by the Senate to this agency. 
he's a political appointee because he works for the president in, in his other job at OMB, he's, whereas the CFPB is an independent agency. And he could end up serving for about two years or more because of the way the Vacancies Act is run. And even if he, even if he doesn't continue to serve, one of his lieutenants at the OMB has been nominated to, to do this. So it's a very strange thing that I would not have predicted would happen. I don't think many <laughs> would because, I mean, who knew before, you know, uh, before a couple of years ago that someone who'd been confirmed to one Senate position could also serve in another? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I guess what I would I say to that is it, it is in a way fitting that an agency that is in many respects unprecedented has this string of other unprecedented events occurring, right? Because the agency was is of a unique design. It is designed to be uniquely insulated from political pressure. And we can talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it's a triumph of public choice economics, right? But then, you know, predictably, you could argue that that's led to some political dysfunction and, and some some or maybe it's just occurring against the backdrop of political dysfunction. And so now we have a bunch of questions about, you know, well, how long is the acting director going to serve? And, uh, you know, wh what does this new potential candidate mean? And, you know, I, I'm going to agree with Justin that I, we're not going to talk about like the candidates personally, but, sure. you know, the, the, the dynamics at play are interesting. Mm -hmm. Can I go down that road real briefly in terms of because because this is a, a common debate that we go through with that the agency is is uh, unprecedented in its design and you know the debate is has often been between people who say there cannot be no changes to the CFPB structure to we need to get rid of it entirely the Supreme Court justice who's just been nominated also wrote an opinion where he basically would have because of the I believe because of the ability to only fire the director for cause would have gotten rid of all of Title 10 of Dodd-Frank, which set up the CFPB. Other than the for cause part, though, is it in what other ways is the structure unprecedented? Well, first, of all, I, I, Kavanaugh's opinion would have struck the for cause protection, not gotten rid of the agency as a whole. The quote I read said I would strike Title 10. I may have misread it. But that's that's Preska. So ah. there, there's a recent Southern District of New York opinion where she would hold striking down Title 10. That's at the district court level. It's non-binding. You know, his, his read was you have to do something. Striking the whole thing down is too much, but we will strike that we will excise the part of the statute that makes it unconstitutional, which is the four cause protection. Right, right, right. I mean, so the four cause protection, it, it, I, my view of it is that any one part of the agency is actually not that unprecedented, but bundling them all together makes it unprecedented. So you have the four cause protection. You have the independence. You have the insulation from the, not only the uh, appropriations process, but Congress has no say in how the money is spent, right? The, the, the director of the, of the bureau can go to the Fed and request money up to a certain maximum level that's relatively high and then has basically carte blanche as to how they want to divvy it up, whereas even some agencies like the SEC that aren't funded through appropriations do have to go to Congress for allocation of the budget. So that, you know, this was all done, you know, the theory was the problem with consumer or one of the problems with consumer protection regulation is that the regulator gets captured by the financial services providers or is Congress is captured by the financial services providers who pressure the agency to go light. And so what we need is an agency that is really insulated from political pressure, which, you know, makes a certain amount of sense as far as it goes. But the problem is what some people call political pressure, other people call democracy. And you you run the risk of an agency that, you know, is really unaccountable and indifferent to elections. And in theory, you could have a world where Donald Trump's permanent bureau director 
lasts the entirety of the next president's term. So yes. what if it's, you know, Kamala Harris or, or, or Senator Warren or whoever, right? You have a you could have a situation as as the bureau is currently set up where the Trump nominee is basically impervious to Democratic pressure throughout the entirety of the next president's term, which, you know, putting aside like which politics or which, you know, which party you may align more with or what your policy preferences are, sounds kind of weird. It, sa- it sounds like at some point elections should matter. Right. I agree with part of that, at least. I think the other there are some other reasons why we should have independence, especially during a crisis. I think it's particularly important to have the, the independence from Congress who, for instance, during the TARP legislation, just was very afraid to take that vote. You can disagree or disagree on whether that was the right thing to do. But I think it was very helpful when days matter to have that kind of uh, power in place. And I think the other reason is I'm basically a technocrat, I guess, if if I have any bias. And I would much rather that Congress set the goals but have the bureaucrats figure out exactly how to do it on a technical level, especially when you're talking about something as technical as financial services. So I think there's a couple other reasons why you have that. I don't think that the Bureau is terribly unprecedented when you look at the other financial regulatory agencies. Uh, The Fed also has independent funding and all of the things that you talked about, and you can't fire the Fed chairman or a governor either. So I think it's even more insulated from political pressure. I think it is a unique combination of circumstances, but I don't think it's terribly unprecedented. Maybe we're going too far down this road, but I I just think it's an interesting discussion. Sure. And we can certainly circle back here. Maybe thinking back in terms, again, not speaking about the nominee specifically, but you you mentioned Justin being excited to see what happens at the hearing next week. And I'm kind of curious from a policy perspective, what kinds of questions, let's say, you know, Chairman Crapo and Ranking Member Brown walk in the door and they're like, hey, Justin and Brian, you guys know this stuff. We're trying to do our homework. What should we ask Craninger next week? You know, what what kinds of questions would do you think Congress should be asking whoever the next director happens to be? So I think one one question that they they should want to get at is what is the director's vision for the agency? Because you know you had you had the Cordray years, which depending on who you talk to, were either really good, really effective, aggressive enforcement, or an abuse of power. And then the Mulvaney interregnum is in no small part rolling back what is perceived by those who think there was an abuse of power, those abuses of power. Well, okay, that's fair as far as it goes. But now the next director, assuming, and we should note that there are, you know, yes, the D.C. Circuit on Bonk and PHH found that the structure was constitutional. There are several other cases in several other circuits that are torpedoes in the water and only one of them needs to hit and the structure question becomes live again. But let's assume that the structure remains what it is, five years independent. What's your positive vision for the agency? Like where do you – what role do you want this agency to play going forward? What role does it play in you know, the, the market? Like how should it act to protect consumers? How should it act to avoid unduly you know, impinging on or stifling innovation and access? You know, how do you see the agency? Do you see it primarily as just a enforcer of unfair, deceptive and abusive or do you see it as you know, a highly technocratic – rulemaking agency. You know, what what does this thing look like under your tenure? I would go I would do something related to that. I'll mention two questions. One would be what do you think the purpose of the bureau is? And do you think that do you think it was right to have been created in the first place? And why? You know, so basically go back to the crisis. Do you think it was an appropriate response to the abuses that happened during the crisis? And, you know, 
I think getting at Brian's point, what is that gets at what's your idea of what the agency is. But I think that, that would get at the philosophy of it a good bit. I was also talking to a friend of mine uh, this morning, letting them know I was going to be on the podcast, Aaron Klein, who you mm-hmm. know well. And um, I mentioned that this question would have come up and he said, you know, I would ask, has she ever had a bad consumer financial experience in her life where she got, you know, was treated unfairly by a company? And how did she think the system dealt with it? Was it effective? I think that would be interesting as well. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I would – pushback might not be the right word, but like just to, to spin things a little bit. I think you could make an argument that having a centralized consumer protection authority at the federal level to handle federal consumer protection law, of which there is quite a bit, could be a good idea independent of whether or not it was the right response to the crisis, right? Like, you know, there are lots of people out there who view the crisis as not really being a problem of payday lending and, you know – even the mortgage fraud side of it was not necessarily the main driver. So, you know, you could say like, boy, this is a response to a crisis. doesn't make a ton of sense. But if we're going to have this, all these rules, it does kind of make sense to centralize them into one body. If for no other reason than that way, a regulated entity has one entity to one, you know, agency to go to and say, all right, what do I need to do to comply? Where do I go to get my no action letter? You know, how, how, hey, this rule, this rule that you made doesn't make any sense. Can we improve upon it rather than, you know, having a situation where you have four or five different agencies all kind of pointing at each other and saying, well, maybe it's their responsibility, maybe it's my responsibility. That centralization, you can make an argument that that centralization is a good idea, separate and apart from whether or not it made sense as a response to the crisis. Right. And uh, I do think in reality, that's how most people see it through. That's the lens most people see it through. And I think it also gets at the the, the letter that Mulvaney wrote when he took the agency over, uh, wrote to the staff. And I don't have the quote here, but he basically said that, you know, we're going to enforce law, we're going to protect consumers, but we also need to, you know, make sure that they have uh, competitive products and services available to them, essentially saying we need to also protect the providers of, of credit. I think that's a big stretch in how you read the mandate of the Bureau. But that's, you know, that's uh, how he views it. And I would be interested to see if that's how she views it as well. Though, I mean, you know, there is... In theory, you know, if you read the statute, there is something that looks like a competition mandate for the bureau, and so, and this isn't this isn't the important distinction that that people on my side of the fence constantly make till we're blue in the face is that there is a difference between being pro business and pro market, and so no no individual provider of credit should be protected, no type of credit product should be protected as if it was the bald eagle, but you need to protect credit markets, you need to protect you know, ways for people to access credit so that the best, most efficient products the, 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 and the players that treat the consumers well so that consumers use them can come in, grow, thrive, and the ones that don't can be pushed out via competition. Right. And, and I agree with you. The, the mandate is ensuring that all consumers have access to markets for consumer financial products and services and that markets are fair, transparent, and competitive. So I, I completely agree with you. I think it's an entirely reasonable position to protect the markets. I think it can be argued that uh, currently there are – there's more being done potentially for individual businesses. I'm glad you brought up the letter and, and Brian, I think you you brought up Acting Director Mulvaney earlier as well. So I want to spend a little bit of time on these last few months. I think it's been seven or eight months since Mulvaney was – you know took over for Cordray after he stepped down. Kind of what has the agency looked like since then? What have been the real policy changes from your all's perspective? I guess the real question I'm asking here is, regardless of who's confirmed to be the next director, 
assuming it happens sometime within the next few months, what kind of bureau are they stepping into? Well, so I'll speak to that a little bit, right, Which and, and talked about a couple of structural changes that have occurred. One, uh, Acting Director Mulvaney has stood up or is in the process of standing up basically an office of economics like what exists at the FTC. So a, a body of economists who – Who's you know answer to an economist who answers to the director? So it's a very direct feed. Who's supposed to be there to do cost benefit analysis of of the rules? And then they've he's also stood up or you know an office of innovation, which is an outgrowth of Project Catalyst. We have yet to see what that is really going to look like. They're they're making some announcements soon, which is you know, and he's he said in in crucial testimony he wants to do a regulatory sandbox now. The definition of regulatory sandbox varies depending on who you talk to. So we don't exactly know what it's going to look like yet. But those are two areas where you – with that show, you know, a, 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 some thinking, which is one, that we are going to be very concerned about both the, the benefits and the costs of regulation, which, you know, goes back to that whole market preservation thing. And then we're very concerned about innovation because we, you know – I think the argument would be that we don't want to impede innovation and we view innovation and competition as consumer protective in and of themselves. Not that every not that every innovation in a, you know is inherently consumer protective, but an innovative market is on the whole more protective of consumers than a less innovative market. There are – and I'll comment on those as well. I think they're good topics. Um, there are a few rules that are going to be either revisited or need to be. Uh, you know, the payday lending rule, for instance, is in a little bit of limbo. It's not something that they can just decide to roll back. They would need to go through a process and perhaps they will. I mean, they're going through some kind of process right now. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. They need to do a review of the uh, qualified mortgage rule. Uh, there's still some things undone, Dodd-Frank, such as Section 1071 about collecting data on small business lending that I think it would be helpful to do, but has been problematic to try to figure out for, for both uh, the previous uh, director and the current one. So there's those. Um, I think on fintech is really interesting. I think that's somewhere where where the the acting director could be really productive, uh, depending on which way he goes with it. Project Catalyst did not, I don't think, got, get a ton accomplished, uh, even though you know I, I've I've talked to some regulators uh, overseas and they said you know that was sort of the inspiration that we took for creating our own regulatory sandbox. But just like the British invasion, maybe they did it better than we did. <laughs> so you know I think something that continues to evolve with the evolving fintech marketplace would be good, something that uh, encourages innovation without giving up the protections. Uh, we, we, you know, he could make some good progress there. Uh, the consumer complaint database is another thing that's, that's in flux right now, where uh, I think the, uh, the quote he said is, I don't see anything in here that says I have to run a Yelp for financial services sponsored by the federal government. So this is an idea where the, uh, the old leadership of the CFPB wanted to take complaints against financial services providers and post them publicly. Uh, Brian, I know you've written about this. I guess I'm, I, I've, I try to take a middle position on that one where I think, I think it's good to, to get that information out in the public in some format, but I also understand that you want the complaints to be at least somewhat verified so you know whether they're realistic or you, know, you don't want to unnecessarily tarnish reputations either. So if they can find some way to vet those and get them out to the public, that would be my preference. But my guess is he will not, not go that far. I'm guessing that those complaints will not be made public. I mean, I suspect you're probably right on that. Just because, mm -hmm. I mean, for no other reason than, you know, the resource drain involved in the vetting may be a challenge, but, you know, we'll, we'll end up having to see. One thing, if I could talk about that, that I'm kind of surprised hasn't changed are some of the, so, you know, they, they've dropped some cases. They dropped PHH after the DC circuit while holding that the structure was 
constitutional, basically gutted the CFPB's case uh, on the statutory grounds. So they, unsurprisingly, they dropped that one. They dropped a couple of other cases, but some of the cases they haven't dropped, I think, are striking. Like they haven't dropped Cash Call out in the Ninth Circuit. They haven't dropped Think Finance. And these are, the, you know, Cash Call in particular, if you want to talk about the CFPB taking a very expansive view of its authority, Cash Call is an example of that. And yet they have not, and I would argue, an excessive view of its authority. But so far, they ha- there doesn't seem to have been any discussion about dropping it, even though it really does seem like if you're concerned about this, you know, if, if you if you view it, and I, I think that's how most people view it, like there's a core of consumer protection enforcement actions that are obviously things you should be doing, right? Core fraud, core deception, all that stuff. Then there are ones like Cash Call where they use abusive to federalize state usury law and take a position, basically assert that, well, to back for a second, there's a split in courts as to who the true lender in a case is. And that matters because different lenders are subject to different laws. Some courts have come and said, well, let's look at the contract. And if the, if the, if it's the lender on the contract, that's the lender. Others have gone with the predominant economic interest test, which is sort of like who stands to gain or lose on, on this loan. And, and that's the true lender. So the CFPB and cash call basically said, Hey, cash call, because you didn't realize that the correct answer was predominant economic interest. And therefore these loans were invalid. You acted abusively. And that's, and not, not that you defrauded consumers about the, the nature of the loans. In fact, the, the court, the trial court said, well, lenders seem to have gotten what they expected. That strikes me as the type of thing that is really an edge, an edgy position for this bureau to take. And I'm kind of surprised it hasn't been withdrawn. Well, there are different ways to drop it. You can formally drop it or you can just not pursue it. And I don't know what they're doing in this case. I have not followed the details, but they can just not be vigorous about it and realize it'll go away potentially. So they've won at the trial level, though they 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 basically got hammered on damages. They'd originally asked for huge amounts of damages in the trial courts that no, you know, no one actually got defrauded, defrauded. But it's now at the Ninth Circuit. I'm kind of surprised that they're still pursuing it. Now, I don't know. Like, I'm not privy to all those discuss- discussions. There may be information I don't have. That's certainly possible. But, like, from what – from the perspective that I would think the acting director would be coming from, I am kind of surprised that that's one of the ones that has survived. The other the other uh, thing that I think is in terms of how it's changed uh, since Mulvaney has come in is that it's become explicitly more a political organization. Now, I think I think – uh, people on the right would say it already was, and you can make that case. Uh, but I think that it, that's conflating people who you know truly think that the, what the bureau did under Cordray is the right policy with partisanship, and that's not always the case. Whereas uh, Mulvaney has come out and explicitly put political appointees with the career appointees and said they're going to work together as a team. Um, so I, I you know I think that's that's an interesting precedent. I uh, being a technocrat, it's not one I like, but. You can argue that either way. And I think that's that's something that whoever the next director is will be interesting how they deal with that. To pick up on that just, just, and to try to pivot into a conversation I think we were starting to go down earlier that I think is a really useful, interesting conversation, which is that like does the structure of the agency insulate it from politics or does it in fact set it up to be political in the bluntest way possible, right? In the sense that you know we can argue – while it's certainly true that early CFPB staff or bureau staff – were not political appointees. They were clearly political. And so and what do, what do you mean by that? I mean I mean they had a very strong ideological bent that was not there is not any great evidence of any sort of balance in that agency. And 
so I think that you know the the argument can be made that all right, well we have these these employees, these government you know regular service government employees. You can't just fire them out after the election like you can politicals. But we also had an election and a, you know someone won and they get they have the right to to influence policy. So the method we have to use is bringing these politicals these pure politicals on board, which – and I agree that like from a technocratic position, that is not a, a desirable outcome. But I would argue if you look at the, a lot of the other independent agencies, they have other more subtle tools for addressing that like multi-member commissions where – Right. But but subtlety makes it better I think, right? I don't think it just covers it up. I think that's – it's it's a better system and it leads to – if you're overt about your politics, if you just come in thinking, well, the other side is super political, so we're just going to be overtly super political, there's often an asymmetry there. And um, I, I think the the, the thing that, that got me the most on this was when um, – it was a couple of months ago. They fired all the members of their advisory boards and – you know, fine. You can you can do that, and we can argue as to whether that's a good decision or not. But the quote from the from the agency in response to the you know complaints of the the people who were on it that they didn't meet with them, they weren't interested in anybody else's advice, was uh, quote the outspoken members of the consumer advisory board seem more concerned about protecting their taxpayer funded junkets to Washington D.C. and being wined and dined by the bureau than protecting consumers. Unquote. That's just ridiculous to me. I mean, I that's that's just offensive to me. It's it's gratuitous, maybe is the best word. You know, again, I I don't. We can argue whether these are the, they're the right people on the board and that sort of thing. But that's that's the kind of overt politicism politicization. I guess I would like to stay away from. And I don't think that was there before. So I think that opens up maybe the the next thing that I wanted to ask about. You know, we've talked a little bit about the courts. We've talked a little bit about you know, the presidency and the four cause issue, but we haven't really talked a ton about Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Brian, you mentioned that there's not a budgetary oversight, so it's not as though any kind of oversight's happening during the appropriations process. But whether you think that Mulvaney's changes have been great, whether you think they've been terrible, is is Congress just sort of going to hold back here? Do you, do you all expect or would you like to see any kind of legislative reforms go on at the at the Bureau, either because of the way it was run before Mulvaney came in or since? So, I mean, Congress, Congress only, only has a couple of very blunt tools right now. They have the Congressional Re- Review Act where they can nuke a rule. Mm-hmm. And which they've done, which they have done, they they did to arbitration. And the problem is with that is it is a very blunt tool. The agency can't. It's not like the agency gets to go back to the drawing board and do a little bit better. Congress has to go give them permission to like go regulate on the topic again. And that's that's a blunt tool. And I think it would be better. I think everyone would be better served, even from sort of a technocratic position, if Congress had some more subtle levers of power. Rather than, well, we can't affect your budget, which is the traditional way to do it. The Senate, only the Senate gets say on the director once every five years. So the House is kind of cut out. Instead, some control over funding or appropriations or how the money is spent or something would allow for a more subtle control. And I know I've used that word a lot, but I mean, you know, nuking a reg from orbit is kind of a blunt tool. The other thing that I mean, and I'm on the record for saying this, I mean, I think ultimately the way this this agency should be designed is a bipartisan commission. I mean, if you want, if you want sort of political balance, independence, technocratic, the bipartisan commission works pretty well. And so I would like there to be that change. Now, things have gotten so radioactive politically surrounding the bureau that I just I don't know if that's going to happen. The the one thing I could see that would maybe force the issue is if you have a court ruling saying that the the structure is unconstitutional. 
And even then, I don't know. But like the the thing that would do it, I think, would be if the court strikes, if the Supreme Court takes up the constitutionality and pulls a Presca and says, we're going to strike Title 10 entirely mm-hmm. unless you guys go and, and change it and make it constitutional, in which case then maybe you get a change. If it's just, well, remove, you know, removable at the president's will. I don't know. Now, now the Democrats might be looking at that and saying, well, you know, Trump has you know, Trump's up for election in 2020. Maybe we like our chances. Then the next day, yank the director, name it a, an acting and move forward. So I don't know. But I would like that's something I would like to see Congress take up. I guess I agree with you at this point on the bipartisan commission. In the past, both single director agencies and commissions have, have they have advantages and disadvantages. They both can work fine. Um, but I think with this extra polarization that we're seeing right now, you're getting we're seeing it, especially with the CFPB is this policy whiplash where it goes all the way to one end and all the way to the other. And it's not good for the markets at all. It's not good for I don't think it's good for consumers to go completely one, you know, that that fast in one direction. So uh, and I, I, the, the other issue, I think, is that with commissioners, historically, it's just taken less time to nominate and confirm them than it does for single directors, even before this era. So I think there are some practical reasons to go with a commission and the, the ones that you talk about. It's probably makes sense at this point. I, th- I would strongly favor continuing independent funding. I think if you get rid of that, it's just a, an easy license for Congress to strangle the agency because it's so difficult for them to pass much of anything. But yeah, I, I, commission's probably a good idea. This sort of brings back to sort of the what's the positive vision of the agency, right? Because like, I really do believe if, if we could, you know, roll back the clock. I really do believe you could imagine a an agency tasked with basically the same authority as the current bureau that's nowhere near as controversial because there are areas of fairly broad agreement. Nobody likes fraud. Nobody likes deception. You know, the FTC isn't constantly in danger of being strangled. And so, you know, and look, I don't want to turn this into like a, you know, well, they did it first or anything like that because everyone everyone has legitimate grievances and everyone has legitimate arguments. But the fact that the agency started out being perceived as pretty far to one side and is now being perceived by others as being pretty far to the other side, that whiplash you're talking about, risks being a long-term threat to the legitimacy of the agency in a way that I don't think it's like mandate is, a, is, a, is you know inherently presents that problem. I think that's perfectly reasonable and you could be right, but I'll I'll put out an, an alternative view of this. I think it's more controversial more because it's a new agency. And the reason that the FTC and the and the consumer products, I forget the name, the Safety Commission. Safety Commission are not controversial is because they've been around for a long time and we don't think about them anymore. I have a friend who's fond of pointing out that the the laws that we put on the book to protect consumers that led to the uh, proliferation of credit and debit cards in the 70s uh, where you assign liability for the, the credit card companies are responsible if somebody makes a fraudulent charge, for instance. There's no way that kind of law could pass today. But we love it today. We're, nobody's talking about repealing it. So I think there's an element, too, that it's it's just something new that happened in a partisan climate, and that's part of it as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, certainly everything that – or almost everything that has come out of the Obama administration is very controversial. Now, you can argue that some of that is controversial because it was a – it was a big and, depending on who you talk to, bad change from the status quo. Certainly a big change from the status quo. So, you know, I, I'm sure that some of this is the newness and some of it is the environment that it came into. But on the other hand, I would argue that maybe a different management style early on could have helped lower the temperature versus what, you know, I mean, 
you look at the you look at the Anbank holding of PHH where they they endorse all of Kavanaugh's findings on on you know the actual law. I mean, that is that is an agency significantly outstripping its authority, and and that's the type of thing that leaves a bad taste in people's mouth. Now, sure. you know there are other I'm sure there are other reasons too, and everyone has different reasons for liking it or disliking it. But like it's not a crazy thing to say, hey, this agency really kind of started off too big for its britches. Well, I had really tough questions for you guys on things like credit reporting and Equifax data <laughs> breach and federalism and what are we going to do with attorneys general. Uh, but I think we are about out of time. So you all get off the hook on that. All right. Um, and don't worry, Justin, I won't take that out of the chocolate payment uh, for the end. You'll you'll be credited with the, with the full amount. I should have negotiated this in advance. <laughs> um, you know, don't there's accuse, a complaint database. I do. <laughs> don't accuse me of unfair, deceptive or abusive uh, <laughs> chocolate contracting practices, please. Mm-hmm. I do want to make sure our listeners have a chance to keep up with you guys uh, because I think as everyone got a sense, this is a moving issue. It's really dynamic, especially now, and there's a lot to be said on it. Um, so we'll start with you, Justin. Uh, where can our listeners go to online to keep up with your stuff? It's just at Jay Chardon, which is J-S-C-H-A-R-D-I-N on Twitter. Perfect. And Brian? I'm at Brian R. Knight on Twitter, or you can find my work at Mercatus.org. Great. Thank you both. And as always, you can reach me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese or email me crees at mercatus.gmu.edu, where I'm happy to hear your comments, questions, concerns, or episode requests. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.